Before we begin today's episode of the Gold Cast, I just want to give a, a little salute and a thank you. We're recording this on Thursday night, 9.30 p.m., October 3rd. And I just want to give a little quick salute to the Los Angeles Rams and the Seattle Seahawks for taking each other out. We got to see those douchebag Rams fall to third place. Seattle Seahawks still sitting in second. And here we are atop Mount Faithful at first place sitting on the throne. So thank you very much gentlemen for that but this episode I just had to mention that because that just literally happened about an hour ago but this episode is not dedicated to the NFL this is dedicated to the Giants this is dedicated to the MLB and more importantly this is dedicated to Bruce Bochy and the future of the Giants but before we get into all of that Raymond why don't you let them know where can they find us you can like us on Facebook.com slash The Goldcast, and you can also follow us on Twitter at The underscore Goldcast, and you can also subscribe to us via iTunes, YouTube, and Stitcher, all under the same moniker of The Goldcast. Like, subscribe, and comment because we love to interact with you. Yes. All right, Raymond, why don't you let them know where can they find you? I can be found on Twitter at Ray Solis and on Instagram at Ray Solis One. And because it's baseball, you know who's back. Our boy, our esteemed co-host, Candlestick Will. Let the people know where can they find you. They can go to Twitter at Candlestick Will and hit me up whenever they need to. Yeah, and then you can find me on Instagram at Rudy Solis Three and Twitter at Rudy Solis. 3RD. Okay, as we mentioned, we are going to do a big uh, preview of the 49ers versus the Browns. That's going to come to you on Sunday. Today, we want to focus on our beloved, beautiful San Francisco Giants. And the end of an era happened this Sunday. I was in town on Saturday watching that game. I watched one of the games. I wanted to see at least one of Bochy's last games. I was there with Raymond so at least the first, we were together in the house for game two against those stinking Dodgers. We, but more importantly, we just want to talk about, this is our reflection. We want to say goodbye to one of the greatest baseball managers of this era, a without a doubt first ballot Hall of Famer. We're going to do that all after the break. But before we get started, of course, your professor of fanalism is in the building. The greatest fanalist in the game is in the building. We still haven't figured out what we want to call Candlestick Will, but he is in the building. Class is in session. Let's go. San Francisco, are you ready? ready? This is the Gold Cast. Boom. Welcome to another edition of the Gold Cast. We are the voice of the Bay. I'm your host, Rudy Solis III, and with me is my brother, my co-host. Raymond Solis I, baby. And our esteemed co-host. Candle. Stick will. Boom. Gentlemen, it's here. The end of an era has occurred right before our eyes. One of the greatest baseball managers of the century. One of the greatest runs of the century. The greatest run of this decade, without question, by far, by any team. The San Francisco Giants say goodbye to Bruce Bochy. 2,000 wins. 11th 
manager to do it. All 10 before him are in the hall. This has been an incredible, an incredible, credible run. Raymond and I were in the building. We got to see game two, a very frustrating loss, but it didn't matter nonetheless because Bruce Bogey's resume speaks for itself. And this was a great, a great run. And on top of that, we can't forget, and this is something we're going to talk about. This first half of the episode, we're going to—I want to get your guys' thoughts on Bruce Bochy's run, and the second half of this episode, I want to talk about Varhan Zaidi and his postseason presser, because as quickly as one chapter closes, so does another open, and the future of the Giants is bright and wide. But let's start here, uh, Candlestick Will. You have been gone for a while, so I want to give the floor to you first. Just final thoughts. Bruce Bochy saying goodbye and close, we, we're closing a chapter on the the greatest baseball manager we've ever had for the Giants in San Francisco. And, and I don't believe that's hyperbole. What do you think? Oh, it's, it's actually not even close. I mean, he's the greatest manager in the franchise's history outside of John McGraw. Um, you know, he was 36 and 17 in the postseason. He won three World Series. The... Uh, amount of wins by the last three managers in the playoffs, Roger Craig, Dusty Baker, and Felipe Alou was 19 wins. So they, uh, they're losing the greatest manager they've ever had in San Francisco. They're losing the greatest match they've had in a hundred years. Um, and it's in saying that it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sad because you, you knew it, after the 2010 season that Bruce Bochy was forever going to be the manager that brought the first championship. But after 2014, you realize you were watching a living legend because you don't, you just don't see teams winning three world series this way. Joe Torrey is, is that way in the, in, in New York with the Yankees. Um, but you don't see teams winning multiple championships and even guys like Terry Francona that won a couple in, in Boston, they got fired, you know, from there. Um, you know, Joe Madden just got fired after getting the first championship in Chicago in over a hundred years. So, you know, the, for a sport that even when teams do something they've never done before, you know, it, it doesn't even last with managers. The, the giants let Bruce Bochy go on his terms, make the decision about when he would step away. And we were fortunate enough to get to appreciate him for this entire season, knowing it'd be his last. And, you know, for a Giants fan my whole life, that's exactly what I was hoping for with Bruce Bochy was that he wouldn't get fired. Because um, I even I even wrote an article um, in the offseason saying that if if the Giants were thinking of, you know, trying to hire David Bell as the replacement, then they should fire Bochy and replace him with David Bell. Because if that's if that's who they wanted, they weren't going to be able to to keep him because he, he was looking for a manager job and Cincinnati wanted him to come in. And I'm, as I wrote that, I didn't want that to happen because no matter how good David Bell is or isn't as a manager, I want, I didn't, the last thing I'd want is for the greatest manager that, that I've ever seen to have to be fired just because it's towards the end of his contract. And, um, you know, I think he deserved to be able to go out on his terms and I'm, I'm so glad that he did. Let me ask you a question. So, especially for the gold cast, you know, the one one of the great things that I really pride the gold cast on doing, and a lot of a lot of our listeners have 
have actually complimented us on this is that we've done a great job of expanding the horizons of so many people that joined this gold cast back five years ago when it was the 49ers gold cast. And we really have sold people on the Giants and the Warriors. And so many gold cast fans, it's been amazing to say, hey, I started listening to you guys because I was a Niners fan. But the way you guys talked about what was going on in the NBA with the Warriors and the MLB with the Giants, I now watch all three teams. And a lot of people have said this to us. So give us, for those who don't know, explain who David Bell is. Who Who is this who is this person and why should Goldcast um, fans know this name and care? Well, I mean, he's a th- third generation, you know, baseball player. He has his father and grandfather were baseball players. He was a damn good player himself and um, was even a, a member of the San Francisco Giants for a short time um, and uh, was, was able to score the winning run to le- take us to the World Series in the uh, 2002 and had a, a huge impact on that 2002 team playing third base for us. And once he uh, retired, he started working as um, a coach, hoping to be a manager one day and was going from uh, different organizations. He uh, worked in the Cardinals organization and a couple others. And the Giants hired him last year to kind of run their minor league system. And there was a lot of thought that one of the reasons he was brought in was because they thought he'd be a perfect replacement for, for Bruce Bochy um, being such a, a good baseball man and, and having the reputation that he did as a player and then as a, as a coach. And, you know, he's the manager now in Cincinnati and, you know, Cincinnati had an okay season. They didn't do great. Um, but for a first year guy on a team that didn't have that much talent, and a lot of their talent was unproven and, and guys who were coming in their rookie year, you know, he ended up doing fairly well, um, all things considered. But, you know, like I said, it, even if he is the next great manager, um, I think considering all that Bruce Bochy's meant to this organization and meant to this, this team, um, I, I don't think it could have gone any more perfect. Um, obviously a few more wins um, had they uh, swept the Dodgers and, Bochy could have retired with a winning record overall and a winning record as a giant, you know, and just stuck it to the Dodgers one more time. That would have been obviously uh, a little bit more ideal or uh, even more extreme, uh, having won a few more you know, the all, all the previous months and actually making the playoffs. But uh, all things considered, the fact that he got to go out on his terms is the, the best part of all this. Absolutely. I totally agree. Raymond, I want to hear your thoughts. Bruce Bochy, this is a man who delivered the first World Series to San Francisco since they won in New York over 50 years ago. And then he delivers two more to deliver the first dynasty since the San Francisco 49ers closed off their dynasty back in the 94-95 season. What are your thoughts on Bruce Bochy and what are your thoughts on that era? Literally, the, the second the second coach to bring a dynasty to San Francisco, that's a big deal because this this city forever after the 80s was a 49ers town without question. But then Bruce Bochy brought it back and made it a baseball town. So what are your thoughts on that dynasty? Well, the greatest of my life, for sure. I mean, Dusty took us twice and lost both times. So, you know, that was always kind of the the one knock on Dusty is yet at, or I'm sorry, Dusty didn't, or didn't take us at, at, 
then. But um, you know, Dusty couldn't get it done, and the before that couldn't get it done, and Felipe Alou couldn't get it done, and Bochi not only gets it done, but gets it done in in a dynasty fashion, which is the best possible outcome you could ask for, even though it was every other year. It's still three within five years, which is, you know, a dynasty in my book. You know, some people like to... In, s- in the modern MLB, I think that's the best you're going to get, right? That or you could be the Dodgers and lose two in a row. Yeah, or or the Texas Rangers <laughs> and lose back-to-back two in a row, too, or split with the uh, Kansas City Royals. So, you know, three. he's 3-0. Three and oh. He's 3-0. and oh. So we have another manager in San Francisco sports era who goes undefeated in championship appearances. Um, which, you know, I know his overall record as a manager is a, a losing record, but it still doesn't matter. It, it'll, it'll never take away the fact that once he got into the playoffs with the Giants in those three years, they they had so much scrappiness and such good, you know, good clutch hitting and good, good clutch pitching. That's what the Giants were missing this past season. They just There was just no clutch factor. And we had that that short little window in July and and we kind of hung in there barely in August but then in September we just really kind of went right back to you know Giants spring May you know May June baseball which was atrocious and that's pretty much how it ended so it was kind of bittersweet the way the season ended but I don't think it really takes away from everything that Bruce Bochy did because he's obviously going to go down as one of the best that's ever played and, and once again the catcher Catchers make some of the best managers in all of baseball, and you know Bruce Bochy being a uh, a product of the uh, the 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 continued success of managerial form slash former catchers turned managers in uh, Major League Baseball, and a credit to him for just being so good about knowing pitching matchups and. You know when he when to pull a guy. You know sometimes you I, sometimes I felt like he would just torture us and leave guys in longer than they should have because I know he was always trying to have pitchers kind of work through their jams. But uh, whenever it came time to you know playoff games, I felt like Bochi always pulled the right strings at the right time and kind of put some of that regular season decision making to the side and just went into kind of do or die mode. And we saw that a lot. I mean I think the, the one that comes to mind first is. Uh, Madison Bumgarner, Madison Bumgarner, you know, taking taking us to the championship against the Royals in seven, and Bruce Bochy pulling the trigger on, on that, you know, knowing that it was going to put a lot of extra, you know, time and 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 a little bit of extra time on on that arm for Madison, even though he's still you know a very good pitcher and still a very serviceable ace in any rotation in baseball. But it was a, a worthy decision that, you know, solidified another win under his notch. So it's uh, it's sad to see him go, but it was something that I thought should have happened perhaps sooner than than now. Because I saw the age of our of our core player group that had, that we had brought up mostly through the farm system kind of really just starting to wean off of the moxie that was able that 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 they were able to lean on during the three championship run five year run. And so that now that that's, now that that's gone, it's time to move on. So, and I'm, I'm excited for the future, which we'll obviously get into, but uh, definitely no regrets with Bruce Bochy. 
You know, we took him from the Padres who in our division and ended up having a lot more success with him than they did. So that's uh, another another notch on the belt there. 100%. Okay, guys, I got some fun questions for you. And then, and then of course, I, I, I want to end this on the future of the Giants because I think it's so bright. And I, I think the three of us are probably the three most excited people in all of San Francisco, except for maybe McCovey Dave. Like these are, We are the three most excited people in San Francisco for the future of Giants baseball. I was literally getting chills during that presser, but I don't. I want to hold it. I want to sit here for a second and bask in this glory because when it's gone, it's gone forever and it might be another 50 years but we all know that's not going to happen so candlestick will raymond solis the first here are the, here's the question i'm going to ask you both i already know my answer for me i want you guys to rank from first to third your favorite world series to your second world series to your third the the best world series win and the second best and the third best i'm not going to say the third least because they were all fucking amazing but I want I want to go from first to third and Kendall Stickwell. I want to start with you. Tell me your rankings first to third. Your favorite World Series win, then your second, then your third. Tell me the tell me your top t- your what's your order for the three? 10, 12, 14. 10, 12, 14. Ooh, okay. So in the order that they happen, basically. Yeah, 10 10's the number one because you never forget your first. And it's just it, it took, you know, I'm I was 30 at the time so it's you know isn't that amazing it was that long ago you and i are the same age isn't that amazing i started watching when i was seven in 1987 and so for 23 years i just wanted one championship and i was just like if i we could just win one time i'll be happy and so to say that for years the idea that 12 or 14 could somehow be better it's like no it's that's that goes against then everything I was asking for because I was asking the world for one and 2010 was just the most beautiful thing to ever happen because it had never happened before um 2012 was my my favorite team because Matt Cain was my all-time favorite player and Matt Cain was their ace he was yeah that was the year of his perfect game that was the year he started the all-star game that was his best season statistically and he was just the absolute ace of all aces and started every game that they clinched so that 2012 teams i probably actually like the 2012 team more um if i'm being biased about the players but the 20 uh the 2010 team for me is just always number one and so with matt kane being my being my guy that that puts 2012 over 2014 as much as Bumgarner was amazing. And as much as I love Mike Morse and, and some of the guys that were part of that 2014 team, um, it's, it's a pretty easy list for me to rank because I, 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 I'll never be able to no championship unless my son was a member of the Giants at some point and made <laughs> the championship. Um, that, or, or I became a coach somehow and then was and then won a championship. If you were on the, your son or you have to be on the team to surpass 2010. I need, I need someone with my DNA on the <laughs> championship for 2010 to be bumped from number one. That's incredible. <laughs> um, let, me spe- let me speak to that really quickly, very quickly. I don't know if you guys know, but this is a story that has been repeated to me several times living in Los Angeles. Sergio Romo's grandfather born and raised Los Angeles. Well, I don't know if he's born and raised, but he's from Los Angeles, Sergio Romo from Los Angeles. 
diehard, lifelong Dodgers fan. Lifelong, his entire life, was so heartbroken that Sergio Romo was on the Giants. And when he passed away, his dying wish was to be buried in a San Francisco Giants uniform, his grandson, Sergio Romo's uniform, because his grandson had won a World Series and and he so he was his grandfather was buried in his in Sergio Romo's Giants uniform. So I get what you're saying about the DNA thing. That's kind of a big deal. So I get it. Isn't that a great story? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And that's the and that's the one thing that'll always change someone's opinion about a team. Because like as much as we love our teams, if if we have a family member, I mean, we saw it in Boston this year with Mike Yastrzemski. You've got got a life, you got three generations of Yastrzemski's all loving the Red Sox their whole life because of Carl Yastrzemski. And all of a sudden his grandson's on the Giants and they're all, and basically the whole stadium was cheering for Yastrzemski every time he got a hit, um, which was just such a cool, you know, thing to see. But, um, but that family was not rooting for the Red Sox when Yastrzemski was up, you know, they were rooting for Mike and, you know, it's, it's easy to become a fan of a different team when, uh, when your family, when you have family members on the team, it's true. Let me talk about my story to contribute. The, yes, and your your 2010. I I went to game one, and not only did I go to game one, I was in left field about ten rows up when that whole derby started happening. We just started scoring run after run after run. I was there. You, I actually found myself on the broadcast. I found the blurry dot that is me and I circled it and I put it on Facebook in 2011 I found myself I can I'll have to find it I'll send you the video and I'll be like listen I have it circled that guy cheering on the broadcast that's actually me and I was 10 rows up I lost my voice the feeling was absolute electricity it's the only championship game I've ever been to for any of my teams and it was one of the greatest sports experiences of my entire life I spent $800 on that ticket and it's the greatest $800 I've ever spent so that's my contribution (laughs) to that story I don't regret it even for one second literally one of the greatest sporting events of my life and when that first home run hit and then it just started going and going. I was grabbing strangers. I was high-fiving people. I have no idea who they were. It was literally one of the absolute I, – I, I actually, I, I'm going to be honest. I'm sitting here thinking about it. It has to be the greatest sporting event of my life. I've never been in any game more important. I've never sat there and just felt the electricity, the importance. It is. It is. And, and you're hearing it first right here on the Goldcast. The 2010 World Series, that game one, being there in left field was the greatest sporting event of my life without question. Without question. Raymond, I want to hear your order for the top three. Are they the same as Candlestick Will or are they different? Mine is different. Mine actually goes in reverse. 2014 then 2012, then 2010. Oh, okay. So I went the other way because... Is that because because of the personnel? No, it was the way, the fashion in which they won. So to me, I have never seen a pitching performance in a World Series like, like Madison Bumgarner's in 2014. I'd never seen anything like it. And to me, that was like one of the most amazing baseball moments that I've ever seen. I I don't know what tops. I don't think anything. I don't think anything 
that I've ever seen in baseball tops. It there's you know the the A's twenty twenty game win streak was not better. The the you know the the eighty nine Bay Bridge series in its entirety was not anything better. That was actually horrible as a sweep. But I mean, great from the A's perspective. But to me, I've never seen a pitcher almost you know single handedly you know dominate a team in the fashion that he did. You know, obviously, uh, many many players chipped in. But at the same time, the Kansas City just they had Kansas City had answers for a lot of what we threw at them. But the one thing they couldn't answer, no matter what, was Madison Bumgarner. And when he went out there, there was just this like chilling fear in Kansas City that you couldn't necessarily. It wasn't this like oh see the guy shaking is none of that but there was just this this energy there's energy towards the latter half of that series where it's like Matt here comes Madison Bumgarner again and he dominates him again and then he comes in as a closer and then it's like and it's like to me as a Kansas City fan you had to be like so on the edge of your seat nail biting type of feeling because it's like oh my god here comes this one pitcher again that we just can't seem to do anything to and i've that, got a great story that for this to me keep going kind of, that to me solidified the win i was like not only is this the greatest thing i've ever seen but it it totally culminates the the dynasty it, it now becomes the number three in in the rotation and the reason why i picked 12 as number two was because that was kind of the peak of the Giants being a dominant World Series team coming in and taking out the Detroit Tigers in you know they blanked them twice in that series the the last game was was a one-run game the first game was not even a close contest the, the Giants dominated so to me it was just like the that was like the the peak of, of of the dynasty where the Giants were just so dominant. They just came in and just like, hey, we did this, we did this two years ago, and we're ready to do it again. They won more games they did than the previous the previous uh, World Series trip by like I think like two two or two or four games. I can't remember, but that to me was number two because I just loved the fact that it was so dominant. And I hated the Detroit Tigers at the time, especially uh, Verlander who I now hated have, Verlander. Yeah. Hated and him. So, and I was like such a great pitcher, but just can't seem to get it done in the world series. And it took him, it took him until the Houston Astros before he finally was able to, you know, notch one under his belt. And then 2010, you know, is in third place. Not that doesn't mean that's not a knock on it by any stretch. I agree. I well, agree we're, we're ranking. We're ranking our three children. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> we still love them all. We love them all. <laughs> I love them all, and you know, 2010 kind of sits. It's kind of the oddball third one to me because it was it was a patchwork team where it was a lot the of misfits, a baby. lot of the veterans. Misfits. Yeah, it was the misfits. A lot of veterans: Vladimir Guerrero, uh, Andres Torres, Aubrey Huff, Doctor Huff. Buster Pogey, Benji Molina, Edgar Renteria, Cody Cody Ross, who was our our big our big silent horse that came up. You know, every World Series team always has one or two guys that just answer the bell. When when like you know, Madison Bumgarner was that guy in 2014. In, in 2010, it was Cody Ross on 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 the as far as the offense was concerned. And you know, and we took out Cliff Lee. Uh, on that one earlier. Oh, that in, was my favorite. Earlier that series. was my favorite was taking out Cliff Lee. I love that. Yeah, and so this was like well, a patchwork well, group. Well, that's because Tim, Tim Linscombe was better. 
Yeah. Oh, it was. It's true. Tim had a great series in that one. He that was you know the last really big you know hurrah he would give us as a starting pitcher before kind of really bottoming bottoming out pretty hard in his career. And I think it's just because he had that really unorthodox delivery in the first half of his career that just took a lot out of his body and his in his hips in particular. But you know that that to me is a great one too. But it was like there were so many players that just kind of. You know, the none of these guys were here. The, the most of these guys were all gone the next year, with the exception of the young guys who were coming up, like Buster Posey, uh, Sergio Romo. We obviously had uh, Panda. Jeremy Affelt would remain a stellar reliever the entire time. So you know that was a tremendously awesome and captivating world series in and of itself too and it was unique because it was still the scrappy scrappy torturous giants but it was made up of guys a lot of guys that had never won it before and they just happened to be together on the right team in the right season to to gel at the right time and make it happen they got into the playoffs on the very last day of the season you know talk talk about you know a torturous grind you know they were that's right they were 92 and 70 that year and texas was more a little bit more stable in that regard i think that was ron washington as the manager during that uh, that run but um but that one's great too but to me it's it's always going to be 2014 just because it was it was the swan song of the dynasty and it was the most one of the the most my personal favorite historic moment in baseball history Wow. Well, one thing I one thing I agree with you on is that if you just rank them by the World Series and not like the entire season, mm-hmm. the most exciting World Series of the three is 2014. It goes seven. Bumgarner pitches for a third time out of nowhere. No one expected that. He ends up getting the save, which was just the, like your man on big, third, two yeah, outs. So right. I mean, I mean, so it, and then you know even Yonder Ventura, you know, may rest. Uh, rest in peace his dominant performance in game six it was just like these the royals were just so damn good and so damn scrappy it was like watching uh you know what we were like in 2012 um and they were like we don't care that you've won two we're we're coming here to to kick your butt too so it was just that was definitely the best world series of the three from a competitive standpoint and then 2012 was you know of the two teams i'd say the tigers overall were probably more talented and better than the 2010 Rangers and for us to sweep them was just the just the coolest thing because I didn't expect that to be honest well and, and no and Raymond no, you did were, say Giants in four though Ray you said Giants in four I don't know if you remember that you told me Giants in four in 2012 you oh, told me before that series oh. Maybe I'm just well, thinking. I mean, maybe I'm one, just thinking that projection now as I in retrospect but at the time thinking that they were pretty dominant the one one thing I was thinking about as you guys were talking is you know the the this, the the three the three different teams were so unique. I mean they had there were we had you know three different closers you know in, in those years um, for you know Brian Wilson, Sergio Romo, and then Casilla. We had um, three different aces. You know Lincecum in 2010, you know Kane in 2012, Bumgarner mm-hmm. in 2014. Mm-hmm. But it's like if you think about where we were as a team after each one. When 2010 ended, you had Tim Lincecum coming off back-to-back Cy Youngs and then a World Series where he was the stud. And that NLDS Game 1 where he had 14 strikeouts against the Braves. And then he wins Game 1 and Game 5 and just dominates the Rangers and makes them all look stupid because he basically 
learned to throw a split finger out of nowhere. And so Benjamin Molina, who'd caught him for so many years, is now on the Rangers. And he's like, I, going back to the, the dugout, like, I don't even know what that pitch was. Um, and just the feeling of like, we have a phenom on our team. And then 2012 happens and you've got Buster Posey, who is rookie of the year in 2010, breaks his leg in 2011, comes back in 2012, wins MVP. And basically comeback player of the year as well. Right. And so you, you, you end 2012 and you're like, we have this phenom catcher, this hall of fame track catcher who every healthy year he's won a world series. Um, him and Bochi together, it's going to be, you know, amazing. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's anchoring this staff as well as, you know, um, being in the middle of our order. And then 2014, you, you already talked about it perfectly, Ray, about how Bumgarner was this like mythic figure by the end of 2014 and became this Paul Bunyan-esque, you know, figure. And it's just crazy to me to think that, you know, Linscombe's no longer in the league. Buster Posey's now at a completely different stage of his career. And now that we may have seen the last of Bumgarner. So as incredible as the feelings were about where we were top down on those three teams, you know, it's crazy to think of like how many years we thought we'd have Linsegum, how we were expecting Buster Posey to just bring us this, you know, decades worth of dominance behind the plate. And then Bumgarner was just going to be that horse that was just going to help us ride in the sunset whenever we felt like it, because he was just going to will us to winning everything. Um, and then just how now all of a sudden it's almost all, it's almost all gone. If, if Bumgarner comes back, that'll be great, but it's possible he doesn't. And so we, we've basically officially closed the door on, on, on everything that we, we saw just not so long ago with Bochy leaving and everything else. But it, those, all three of those teams are just so damn unique. And the, the things that were consistent, like Affelt, Romo, Lopez and Casilla and the bullpen and, you know, Posey and Bumgarner and Kane and Lincecum. You know, and Pablo, it's like those those were the, the anchors for those teams. But even in that case, I mean, Linsingham was not much of a help at all in 2012 and 2014. Right. He gave you us know, those relief. They give us those relief innings in 2012. Right. And that was about it. Right. Zito then, wasn't even in the rotation in the first right. and then, uh, series. Uh, and but Matt but Kane, Zito and saved Matt our Kane, ass in 2012. Yeah. He did. Matt Cain was hurt in 2014. And, you know, so it's like is, you know, we. I think there was a feeling in 2010 that we had we had our Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz with Linsicum, Kane, and Bumgardner, and and it didn't work out that way. And it just it also has even though the the Braves only won one time, you know, it just reminds everyone how special Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz were because you just don't see that. You don't see right. three pitchers be able to stay together um, for uh, that kind of length of time. And, right. we'll prob- and we'll probably never see that again with the way the baseball is changing and how how guys are uh, um, are being used. Right. Uh, but and even know, when you so- have that many aces, it's not a guarantee that you're going to win. The A's had Mulder, Zito and Hudson and all three of them struggled in the playoffs. Yeah. Um, and, even and even, even Zito with us. Well, and I think that also goes to, you know, the number one thing is that it's really hard to be a dominant pitcher for more than two or three years mm-hmm. because it's, you're going to blow your arm out if. If you're, if you know, if you're Mark, if you're Max Scherzer, you're going to, you know, throw your arm out every year trying to throw 200 plus innings. Eventually you're going to fall apart. And, um, you know, I'm not saying that Max Scherzer is going to fall apart, but it's like, you know, he, even if he doesn't, he's an outlier because most pitchers do, you know. Right. And, and, uh, and so if, if you're a stud, you're, 
the I, the chances of you know even like someone like Verlander getting to three thousand strikeouts. It's like it, it's amazing that any guy can still do that. Not just because it's the longevity, but just how many pitchers even have the number of innings in the first place to even possibly get to those kind of numbers. Um, and is, is so it is really just incredible that um, that some guys are in this league, whether it's Sabathia and Verlander or or whoever comes next. Um, that they're even able to get to those kind of numbers anymore because they just don't pitch as much as, as guys used to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here we go. Here's my turn. First of all, the uh, I love I love everything you guys have said. This is great. And you, you guys are taking me down memory lane, just all the players, all the pitchers, all the bats, all the moments. I love this. My order is also slightly different from both of you. <laughs> um, but but a li- uh, similar in places and different in others. M- I I come into baseball, and I don't know, Candlestick, well, if you know this, I, Raymond knows this. I, I've talked about this many times. I came into baseball very late in my life. I spent my whole life watching the 49ers. That's really who I grew up with. And I used to be a professional b-boy and uh, a gymnastics coach. I was coaching the number one gymnastics team in the state of California through most of the 2000s. And so I really came into baseball in 2008. And in 2008, I come into baseball and a really good friend of mine, uh, uh, DJ Shroby Girl, big famous club DJ in San Francisco, has season tickets. And she's like, you should come with me to the games. She brings me to five or six games in 2008. We go to 10 games in 2009. And I probably go to about 25 or 30 in 2010 leading up to the World Series. This is before the World Series. I mean, and and it's every year I just kept going to more and more games. And obviously 2010 is always going to be real special to me because I went to that first game in the World Series, the only championship I've ever gone to for any of our teams here in San Francisco. But my ranking, my ranking for me, gentlemen, I agree with Raymond, 2014 is my favorite of all time. But my second is 2010. No question. No question at all. And then 2012 is my third. And I'll explain why. And I'll tell you guys where I was in each one of those. 2010, I'm in San Francisco. I go to the parade. I'm there hours early. And I'll never forget my buddy, Will. He owns uh, Cafe Royale, which this will come into play in in a couple minutes here. Cafe Royale. And he looks at me and he goes, this is it. He goes, you're ruined for life. Now you're a baseball fan for life. It's ruined. Your life's over. You're now going to be a baseball fan for life. And he's a, he is a lifelong baseball fan. I said, it is. It's over. That's it. I go, I go. And he goes, I can't believe this. You've been watching the sport for two years, and now they win a World Series in, in, in your third year. He goes, you're, you're ruined. He goes, you know, he goes, you know it's never going to happen again, right? Like, he goes, this never happens. I go, I know. I'm, I'm totally ruined, though. I go, I'm a baseball fan for life. And this is at the parade. We're running around the parade like maniacs. We're having the greatest time ever. I move to Los Angeles. I move to LA in 2012. I come back for San Francisco has several epic Halloween boat parties, uh, several epic boat parties every single year. But their most epic boat party of the year is this Halloween boat party. They do this every year. I'll never forget walking up the stairs. It's game four 
against the Tigers. I go up there. There is two giant groups at the top of this boat. I believe we're on the Spirit or I think we're on the Spirit or the Hornblower. I think we're on the Hornblower that year. And there's two groups and there's these giant circles of over 30 people and they're literally both chanting at the same time, let's go Giants. Let's go Giants. And they're just going. And I, and I look and I turn, I turn to my then girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. I turn and I go, they're watching the game. They're watching game four. And we rush up. And there's these, there's there, there these two crowds, both these crowds that are about 10 feet apart from each other have these iPads. And they're watching the ninth inning, the end of 2012. And we're sitting there and we're looking and we're watching. And then it's getting down to the third strike, the third out to end the game. And then the the group to the right of us starts cheering and going nuts. And I turn and I look and I go, oh my God, I think we just won the World Series. And then everyone goes crazy. The whole boat goes crazy. They start not blaring the horn as they're, as they're there. We walk into San Francisco. The entire city is celebrating. And I'm going, I'm here. We're, I'm, at, I'm at two two parties back to back, right? 2010 and 2012. 2014, I am all the way in Los Angeles. Now, going back to my buddy, Will, no relation to Candlestick Will, going to Will who owns Cafe Royale. He is was a lifelong Royals fan who had adopted the Giants because he'd been living in San Francisco for so long. At the start of the playoffs, I'm living across from this guy named Jason, who also is a lifelong Kansas City everything fan from Missouri. And I, I go up to him and I go, hey, man, we're both in the wild card. And he goes, wouldn't it be crazy if we both ended up in the playoffs, I mean, in the World Series? I go, it would be crazy. It's not going to happen, though. I mean, we're both in, in the lowest seeds in the wild card. Like, it's, he goes, I know, but wouldn't it be great? I go, it would be awesome. It's not going to happen, but it would be awesome. And every, almost every day, we would come out of our, our apartments. Our apartments sat across from each other. We'd both walk out after his games and after my games. And as the series kept going on, we kind of kept looking at each other going, is this going to happen? Are, are we going to both get to the World Series? And, and, it, and, we'd, and, the, and the Giants just kept going. And the Royals just kept going and going and going. And we just kept walking out going, no, no, this, no, no, this isn't going to happen. And all of a sudden, it happens, and we're there. And Raymond, like you. Royals had that kind of destiny, they had a, a, almost a, a destiny storyline that was following following them along throughout their playoff run. I don't know which one of you guys said it. We, we were facing the 2010 version of ourselves. We truly were. We were facing ourselves. The only difference was it had been 50 years for us, 25 years for them. I don't feel bad for the world. Stick it, eat it forever. But anyways, going back to this. They, they won the next year. They're fine. They're yeah, fine. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. They won the next year. And I've and got a post. 30th, it was a 30th anniversary. It made more you know, numerical sense. It was fine. It was fine. It was totally fine. So we get there. So let me, let me, guys, let me break down my buddy Will, Cafe Royale. This guy's from Hawaii, lifelong Royals fan. I don't remember why. He, I, he, when he first moves to California, he sends a letter to the Kansas City Royals, and he says, I am going to, with my, my other lifelong Royals fan, we're going to get on our bicycles. We are going to bike from San Francisco 
to Kansas City to see a Royals game. We just wanted to let you guys know this is how much we care about your team. The Kansas City Royals wrote back and said, if you actually show up, we will put you on the jumbotron, put you on the news, and put you behind home plate. And they did it. They biked all the way there. When the Royals came into town, literally the team, their managers, their players, they went to Cafe Royale and they were on the news in Kansas City when they got here. My buddy gets goes, I've got a ticket. I've got a ticket. If you want to come and see one of the games here in San Francisco, if you're in, I want to go. I couldn't go. I had extenuating circumstances. I couldn't go. But he goes... He goes to Kansas City. He is there. Raymond, you were talking about, I don't know about how Kansas City Royal fans feel. I asked him, I said, how did you guys feel when Bumgarner came out in the seventh game of the World Series? And this is what he told me. He said the crowd was raucous. They were screaming. They were yelling. They were just so energetic. He said the energy through the crowd was like, we've got this. We are not losing to the Giants at home. And then he said, Madison Bumgarner came out. And he told me, he goes, the crowd was dead silent. The killer. He said, you the killer. He said you could have heard a pin drop. He said he goes it's like an running entire... into Michael Myers in a dark alley. It was it was like Michael <laughs> Myers from Halloween walking out, walking to the hospital to go get Jamie Lee Curtis and finish this thing. He said the crowd fell into a hush. You could have heard a pin drop. He goes you could feel the fear going through the entire stadium. And he said he goes he goes he goes the entire crowd knew it. He said, we're toast. As long as this guy's on the mound, there is nothing we're going to be able to do. There is nothing we can do to beat this guy. That entire crowd was stifled into a silence as he walked out. I'll never forget watching on the television, Madison Bumgarner walking across the field to the mound like a fucking monster, just ready to go. And... For me, I, 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 maybe because I was a break dancer and a gymnastics coach and because I, I, I just come from sports where solo competition is so important and baseball is a team sport. It's a solo sport masquerading as a team sport in my opinion. Watching Bumgarner walk onto that mound that and literally this is the blueprint that the Chicago Cubs use two years later to win their championship. They use it the exact same way with Aroldis Chapman. They do the same thing, but... Watching him come out, watching one person just dominate in the way like a Joe Montana did in his heyday or a Steve Young, you know, just Deion Sanders. Like, I, I love when one player just elevates himself to a level. I remember in 2010 when we were scared of Madison Bumgarner going on the mound. We were talking about it in right. the stadium. And in baseball, it's usually a batter that gets, you know, that kind of attention or one amazing pitching performance in one game. But Madison in did it three series. times in the series. I believe it was, That's you what guys just can correct me, away me. About I it. believe it was a .92 ERA after, after the series was done. .92, I think, right? Yeah, he, he had only allowed one run in his two starts, previous okay, two starts. Okay, there, there it is. It, yeah. It was, it was the sweetest of victories for me because it was similar to the Warriors last year. We, we didn't necessarily really have the 
quote unquote talent or we didn't quote unquote deserve to be there, but we'd been there so many times in such a short period. We knew exactly what to do. We'd been there before. It's almost the exact same team from 2012 to 2014. Not that many differences, but it was it was like we won on experience. We'd been there before. We knew what to do and we made it happen. And it was it was for me, like you, Raymond, the single greatest performance I've ever seen in baseball, I've ever seen in postseason baseball. And this was a guy that had elevated himself from 2010 to 2014 to the baddest motherfucker on the planet. I part of my French. I just I get so hyped talking about these stories. And it was the most exciting to me. Now, postscript. I go to this, I run out of my, I, so I run out and I see that guy, Jason, and he goes, great game, congratulations, god damn it, you guys deserve it, I, I, I can't even take it away from you guys, that was an amazing series, an amazing seventh game, the Royals fought, fought till the end, I can't believe, and I told him, I said, you know what, I think you're probably going to win it next year, and I literally said that at the end of game seven, postscript to that, I go to this bar because I'm in LA. I'm in the home of the douchebag Dodgers. And I go to this bar and I walk into this bar and there's a girl sitting next to me and she's wearing all Royals gear. And I am in LA in, in Niners hat, Niners jersey, uh, I'm sorry, Giants hat, Giants jersey, top, top to bottom in Giants gear. I don't even care. And this girl's in Royals gear. And this girl has the audacity. She turns and she goes, it's okay. I forgive you. A, as if I've done something wrong. B, as if I care. Why do I need an apology? We just won the World Series. I don't need an apology from you. You should be apologizing to yourself. So I turned to her and said, hey, look, look, listen. Let me explain something to you. That's exactly what I tell her. And she looks at me and I go, it was 50 years. It took 50 years for this team to win their first World Series. You guys are at 25. I don't feel bad for you. You'll be fine. You'll win it again. Uh, 50 years for us, 25 years for you. Sorry, not sorry. It's like, no, not a thing. And then she just kind of turned around and went back to her seat. And I was like, no, 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 no. 50 years for us, 25 for them. I don't feel bad. Now, 2010, for all the same reasons that you said. Now, Candlestick Will, I wish I had the history that you and Raymond do. I really do. I love the history you guys talk about. I'm obviously a big fan of the history of sports. I've gone back and seen so many games, read about so many eras from all three of these teams. Um, and and I love that you were in it for that long. But for me, it's the same thing. It was the first. I had never been to a championship before. I, I I was a I was a brand new fan. It was my third year watching baseball, and I'm seeing this team that I went to, guys. I went to between 2008 and 2010. That the year that we won, I went to. There were ten straight games where I saw the Giants lose. I considered myself bad luck. I was literally ten straight games. I saw the Giants lose. I was like, I'm bad luck. I'm bad luck for this team. I'm bad luck for this team. Um, and. To, to see this team elevate themselves to the level they did. I, I, I didn't know a lot about baseball in 2008 and 2009. I just saw them lose, 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 lose. So it was incredible to me. To me, it was like we just magically jumped to this level because I was so green. And I, I'm also a big, big fan, big, big fan of Tim Lincecum and Brian Wilson. They were in the, the race players. in 2009, but just fell short towards the latter latter end of the season. And I, I, had and a, I, I said, you know, I – what I said at the end of that season, I said, I said they're going to make the playoffs this year, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, they're going to make the playoffs next year. 
That's what I thought in 2009, at the end of 2009, because I was left well, with enough, know, enough hope to, to believe in them. And to be honest, in 2011, uh, 2011, we probably would have gone back and won the World Series back-to-back. -back. We just had the most injured players in all of the league, and it still took us the entire season to give up the first-place seed in the NL West. We probably would have gone back in 2011. We were that good. We had literally the most injured team in all of baseball, and we were still holding on to the NL West with a dead hand. But I digress. Um, 2010, to me, was the second most special because it was the first time I was able to experience a, dyna, a, a championship. And I will say this to you, Candlestick Will, and I said this to my father after 2014. I said, you know what's really cool about the Giants dynasty? I said, He said, what I go? I said, because I grew up my whole life knowing about the Niners dynasty, but I was a baby. I was such a kid. I went back and saw all those Super Bowl wins as an adult. I never saw them as a kid. I remember the Steve Young one, and I remember going to the Mission District after 89 and, and, and celebrating in San Francisco. I remember those two. Those are two of my two earliest memories. Outside of that, I have no real memory of the Niners' uh, Super Bowl wins. And I said, the thing that makes this Giants dynasty so special is that it's my dynasty, that you got to experience a dynasty as an adult, and now I get to sit here and experience in a dynasty as an adult. And little did I know that the Warriors was right behind them, and I'd go two back to back and be the most spoiled. We're the most spoiled sports fans in all of sports. I mean, we are literally the most spoiled fans of this era, this decade. It's ridiculous. But 2010 for me, without question, is number two on the list. And then 2012 is number three. It was so dominant. It was such a cakewalk. It was great. I, 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 it's the temple of doom of Indiana Jones movies for me, you know, like, like Raiders is a classic last crusades, probably the greatest. And then temple of dooms in the middle. It's still fucking awesome, but it's in the middle, you know? And, and for me, for me, the 2012 is the, is the temple of doom of the series. I look at 2014 as last crusade. And then of course, 2010 as uh, Raiders of the lost Ark. Now I, I want to ask you guys a couple more questions because um, we're already at like, 54 minutes, but screw it, screw it. Bruce Bochy and the Giants deserve this long of a podcast. I want to ask you guys, and Ray, I want to throw it back to you. Who is your favorite, who's your favorite top three players from this dynasty run? Top three players. Who are your favorite three? Mm, probably, probably Mad Bum, number one. I think, uh, Romo number two. I just thought I just thought his the movement off his pitches was so nasty in 2012. I loved watching him pitch. And then 2010, probably probably Cody Ross because he was such a just a regular average baseball player that just rose to the occasion when we needed him the most. When when we needed players to rise to the occasion the most, and just became you know this this amazing 400. 400 bat, 400 average bat uh, throughout the entire uh, playoff run, or for most of it, anyways. Nice. Candlestick Will, what about you? Kane, Posey, Pence would be my top three. Um, Kane, I, I grew up, I grew up, Kevin Mitchell was my favorite player um, in, in Giants history, you know, for, of, you know, when I, for, you know, for when I was a, from when I was a fan. Um, and, Matt Cain was so damn good in 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008 when the Giants were awful. And yet he just kept that going out there with a fastball and a curveball and not much else and just 
grinding and battling and learning how to become a pitcher that I just completely fell in love with what he could bring to the Giants and what he was doing and never complained no matter how many times he got caned, no matter how many times, you know, the Giants would score no runs and not help him one bit. And he'd just he'd be like, no, I, I have to get better. I gave up a run today. You know, I got to find a way to, to pitch better. You know, it was just his his attitude was just incredible. And, you know, Buster Posey is uh, the Johnny Bench, Yogi Berra of, of our era. And just what he was able to bring to this team the last half half decade is just incredible. And and then it's in, it's kind of impossible not to love Hunter Pence. So if I'm if I'm ranking them, that's probably my top three. Um, the 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 guys though from each from each team that were just the, the guys I just loved despite whatever was Juan Uribe was just my he was my guy in that 2010 team yeah um, yeah you, you yeah gotta, props to Uribe no you got you got you got to love you got to love Jazz hands and a guy who can hit under 200 and have 14 RBIs you know just he always whenever he got a hit it was always a huge hit and he just he was such a big part of that team in that locker room and, and on the field and he, when when Sandoval wasn't playing well he'd play third and when Sandoval was playing well he'd play short and when Renteria was out he'd play you know he's just he he was the one of the, one of those first versatile guys we ever had they you could just just put him in the lineup and he'll make something happen um and then uh the 2014 team I just I, I loved every single thing about Mike Morse that was that was my guy the the eighth inning home run off Neshack might be my favorite moment of the whole dynasty. Um, you, know, you might be right. You might be we right don't, about that. We don't the greatest, greatest, you know I mean? greatest offensive moment of the dynasty. Well, and, you know, I, I think if you are, if you're ranking them, you, you kind of the same way that I rank 2010 as my number one world series, you probably have to rank either Brian Wilson's strikeout of Nelson Cruz or Renteria's home run as number one, just because of the magnitude of it being those, those two moments that, signified the 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 first championship but if i'm just talking favorites i think mike morse's home run to tie the game the the electricity of the crowd the the way he floated around the bases with the most joyous you know i've never seen a guy have more fun on the base pass after during a home run than than mike morse in that in that home run you know gallop and uh you know we don't get the ishikawa walk-off without mike morse tying the game and uh, and so that that one for me was and Mike Morris for me is just one of those unsung hero guys that just happened to always be in the right place at the right time. And then um, of all the of all the relievers, Je- Jeremy Affelt was my dude. Um, that guy just came up huge. Yeah, he was amazing. He was in, the in, man. He was well, the and, one constant out of that pen. Was well, and I wrote I wrote an article all the way when, through all the way through. Yeah, he's got three. Yeah. I wrote an article in uh, after the 2014 series that Jeremy Affelt was the best relief pitcher in Giants history, and when you when you really look at it, it's like you know, there, you know, there's guys like Rob Nen and Rod Beck, rest in peace, and um, and Brian Wilson that were just all amazing. But you know, Jeremy Affelt was part of the biggest moments of all three of those series um, when when he uh, when the moments he had in, in Philadelphia where he had to come in after the Jonathan Sanchez stuff with Chase Utley. And he was able to settle things down and calm everything down. And in what could have been a complete disaster where our entire team could have folded, he came in and shut the door and kept, and kept us from 
giving up the lead in uh, in what became such a critical game of that series against the the Phillies. So we don't get to the World Series, I don't think, without Jeremy Affelt's performance in that game. Right. And then in 2012 in Detroit, he shuts down the middle of the order. Uh, that was such a, I mean, it was such an incredible middle of the order with Miguel Cabrera, who had just won a triple crown, and Prince Fielder. I mean, uh, and, and Young, it was just that that pure power, power and, and average. And he and he just mowed him down, and just they didn't even get a hit off him, and he just shut him down, and then they win the they win the series after that, and then in 2014 he ends up getting the win in uh, Game Seven. And, you know, it's it's him being on the mound is probably known more for the incredible uh, chronic double play with uh, Crawford and Panic. But, you know, Jeremy Affel gets the win because Tim Hudson was struggling and he gets brought in the second inning and he gives us, you know, two plus innings of uh, of, you know, uh, scoreless baseball, because outside of Mariano Rivera, no one's ever pitched more scoreless innings than, than Jeremy Affel in the playoffs. So. It's just what what he was able to do for us is just incredible. So um, yeah, I I liked him a lot. I, I was also, I was also a big fan of Javi Lopez too, who also has three rings as a Giants reliever. Yeah, 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 yeah. That core I, that core four all have three. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so I'll keep this quick because then I want to go on to the future of the Giants, and then we got to get out of here. We are we are. This is almost two. There's already two gold casts in a row in one. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it to the Aces for me. I thought about it. I, man, I let me let me just go real quick down the list of just honorable mentions. Buster Posey, number one, without question, without question, without question. If there was a fourth spot, we're only doing the top three. He would be right there in the fourth. Um, you already said the names: Mike Morris, Ishikawa, um, Affelt, uh, uh, Panda. God, I mean, you could argue Panda right at number two, right behind Buster Posey. Never saw a pitch he didn't like. Was the most clutch hitter we had through the entire post of all these runs. Um, Cody Ross, no question. The the all all big players. Sergio Romo, Brian Wilson. I mean, the list goes on. Uh, Sergio Casilla. But I've got to go Bumcarner number one. I got to go my dude, and I, I never got a chance to say as you can, stick will the same. My dude, my dude, my dude, Matt Cain. And then the freak, Tim Lincecum, the freak, the leader of the misfits. I, those, those to me, those are, those are my top three. Those are without question my top three. I, I have to give it first to Bum Garner, second to Matt Cain, three to Tim Lincecum. Those are my dudes right there. All right, let's move on. Let's go to the future of the Giants. Let's keep this real quick so we can get the hell out of here. Uh, But let's talk about Farhan Sadie has the big press conference and a lot of things he hit on. They asked about Bumgarner. They asked about the end of the season. They asked about the trades that he made. And there was just a, a lot of talk towards the future. That door is closed. But the future for the Giants, in my opinion, has never been brighter. Uh, let's start with you, Raymond. Let's talk about final thoughts on the presser. How do you feel about us going in to the 2019-2020 season for the Giants? I guess 2020, actually. Just 2020. I feel great. I feel like there's a legitimate shot to re retool and resurge and 
reload the Giants and make them a competitive club again. And I think Saidi's a tremendously gifted mind to lead that charge, and he has a proven track record. And I know, you know, the big questions coming in is, you know, starting pitching, relief, starting pitching kind of being the big one, and offense for me. You know, who goes, who stays? To me, I, you know, we definitely improved our power this year, but, you know, this was also the year of the home run. So, you know, as, as Zaidi pointed out, every other team in baseball got great at the, home, the long ball this past season, too. So there's a lot of un- unanswered questions, but it was, I thought it was a good presser. I thought he gave some, some nice nuggets. You know, he, he got rid of eight uh, pro, pro scouting staff members. So I thought that was like a step in the right direction. You know, even because I feel like the the run that we had of getting those good guys had the 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 L the the well had had emptied. So now it's time to refresh the eyes that are going to be looking at the future uh, of the franchise. So I was okay with that move, and he kind of just said like also the same thing too. It, it correct me if I'm wrong, but he's going to give two of our two to um, inside he's going to give two of our uh, two coaches a chance to interview for the position but that sounded like more of a formality based on the way he phrased it than than a legitimate shot he said they were going to get at least one interview you know i think they're going to be looking more out in those six to eight candidates going forward but um you know will you can you can chime in on that one you know on your thoughts i'd be curious to get what, what you thought about the uh the managerial hiring process that he's going to go through well, I think part of it is that they're also looking for a GM still. So there, there's a, a little bit of interest there because right. will will they end up finding one before the other? Will that manager or that GM say, I don't want to say yes until I find out who the other one is? and will, Or will that make it easier? Like if they get a GM first, then will that GM be in on all the meetings for the manager in time to have second and third interviews or whatever? So um, I think they'll give uh, Wotus and Mullins a shot. Um, but at the same time, they, they it'd be silly for them to not interview others and just, right. give, and just give the job to Wotus or Mullins. Because I do think both are qualified, but I also think that they – they should be looking at other guys, whether it's a Raul Abanez or whether it's a retread like a Bob Guerin, who he has a relationship with in, from L.A. and, and Oakland, um, right. or whether it's or whether it's someone with a, a proven track record like a, a Madden or a Socha or a Brad Osmus or someone else who's been who's been recently fired or let go that um, you know that might be a, a, an option. And there could be guys, you know, I know the name Mark Kotze was thrown out. I'm sure I'm sure Giants fans would love to find out will clark would be interviewing or someone like that you know there they could go in a lot of different directions the one is thing mark kotze seeking a manager job i believe well i i believe so i mean he was a bench coach a couple of years ago i think he's now right uh, in i think he's doing um i forgot what they said he was doing now but i think he works for the a's basically as a um, quality control so he he takes all the analyticals from the front office and relays them to the players. Right, so right. Basically, the perfect you know job for the NFL equi- the NFL equivalent entry coaching position. But it all, but that but that job in baseball is gonna it holds a lot more water now because it's the guy who's literally teaching the players what the front office wants and why. 
Mm. And so to be that middleman, you're actually gaining so much more knowledge about where baseball is going and how and how to. Cause, I mean, if you, even, even if you look at the, some of the best players in the game, the Mike Trouts, the Alex Bregmans, and some of these guys, I mean, they're using all these uh, analytics to make themselves better players, to anticipate where a pitcher is probably going to pitch and why he's going to pitch there and where the how spin rate's going to change how the ball comes off the bat and therefore how I should swing. And, and, you know, I mean, so all of this new technology, the players that are embracing it are the ones that are having the best careers right now. And so to have a guy who's, who understands the, you know, what the numbers mean and not just, Hey, these numbers suggest you should go get this guy and just blindly trust. Instead, you're actually having to learn, you know, the, the, the process. Mm -hmm. Those those are the guys that are going to end up in manager, in manager positions, I think down the line. Um, and you know, as I said, all those names, the first thing I would say about anything that Farhan does is it's probably going to be something we don't expect because I didn't know that Carl Yastrzemski had a grandson until we went and got Mike Yastrzemski. I barely remember Alex Dickerson before we got him. I have no, I had no idea Jalen Davis existed until we traded for him. So the, the guys that Farhan is aware of and likes and knows is a lot bigger list than any guys I've heard of and every guy he went and went and got had you know some production this year whether it was in the major league level or or in the minor leagues and our minor our minor league triple a team won won the championship so he's clearly finding ways to add talent in all levels and so I think that's what the most exciting thing is is that whether they go out and get a, a manager we've never heard of or whether they bring in someone we have you know, all the way from some, you know, obscure double A manager to Will Clark and anywhere in between. Whoever he brings in is probably going to be a, a damn good hire because he's going to be picking from a pool that is a, a lot of uh, smart baseball men and know what they're doing. And then if he can go out and get a GM that also has the same, you know, ideas and thought processes, then it's going to create um, an environment to, to win and be successful, which is exciting. Right, especially if they can gel together. Well, I mean, they're, obviously they're going to be looking for that that synergy. Well, and I think it's going to be guys who have, uh, you know, are like-minded in what their pursuit's going to be and how they're going to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Um, they won't necessarily have to have had a relationship before. Right. Uh, you know, I know that uh, Billy Owens was a name that they were um, they had tried to bring him over from the, from Oakland uh, last year, and and he decided to stay in Oakland. I don't know if he'll be an option for the GM job this time around or if, or if at the time you know, a year ago, maybe he told Farhan that he, he would rather stay in Oakland or and maybe isn't even a consideration this time. But whether it's someone like that or, or again, a GM that maybe we've never heard of, you know, um, I, I'm looking forward to finding out more about whoever Farhan brings in. So. Yes, and and to yes, and you, I remember you, Candlestick Will, in our group thread sending us a text that says, Farhan is probably going to add 12 players we've never heard of, and we're going to do great next year. So that, well, I mean, look at, look at how much better we did this year from last year as far as the production we got from guys he brought in. Um, You know, to your points earlier, uh, you you guys were kind of alluding to this too, and, and, um, the fact that guys like Belt and Crawford and Posey really struggled this year, and and so some of the guys who have, were the were Bochy's guys, they're not going to be the next manager's guys. They're you know they they will probably 
it, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that Belt, Crawford, and Posey will still be Giants when the season starts based on their lack of production this year. But right, and the fact that both Posey and Crawford are, have no trade clauses that make it a lot harder um, to be moved. But just from a practical standpoint, more than likely they'll be on the team. But in what fashion and how many games they play, you know, when does Joey Bart come up? You know, does he come up at all? Does he come up in May? Does he come up on opening day? How does that impact, you know, how many games Posey's behind the plate? Does Posey start playing first base more often? Do they do, do they find a way to trade belt the same way they traded Mark Melanson, despite, you know, having a bad contract? Um, You know, so, you know, I think all those things factored in the fact that, Farhan traded Mark Melanson and and all of his contract to Atlanta um, and got and got prospects in return suggests that Farhan ha- is going to find that one team that will look at Brandon Belt and say, you know what, with his swing, we we, t- we we bring him into, you know, whether it's New York or Boston or somewhere where the the right field fence is a little bit more forgiving. Um, you know, maybe they look at a guy they can fix that has had success in this league and, and when he's right, knows the strike zone as well as anyone. And therefore they'd be willing to take most of his contract because they, they value him the same way that we used to um, when he was, when he was playing at a, at a high level on both sides of the ball. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens because, you know, Samarja and Longoria were untradeable a year ago. And after the seasons they both had both now be, are guys that could be traded. And they, they've played well enough where maybe that Farhan won't want to trade them. So that's exciting when you have guys that can kind of turn their careers around. Hopefully with a new manager and, and some new, uh, new uh, people in the front office, maybe there'll be some new voices that can help guys like Posey and Crawford and Belt kind of refine their swing and, and kind of fix what's, what some of their problems are. Definitely. I'll give you guys my final thoughts on, on the presser. I thought I thought Zadie did an excellent job of towing the line between respecting what's come before and then emphasizing that regardless, this franchise is in need of a reboot. Like there's just no question about it. And he did a really great job of 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 paying respect to what has come before and then emphasizing, but the battle is not done. We have to move forward. And I think that he said this a lot of times in the presser. He said that, you know, he was in a really delicate position because he was trying to pay respect to Bochi and to his guys and to what they had done and was trying to keep them competitive and, and, and also, you know, at the same time, not just trade away every single person that was a part of this winning franchise that helped build the franchise into what it was in the first half of this decade, but that at the same time, usher in and start to kind of bring in his guys. And he was he was balancing two eras, one that was ending and one that was trying to begin. And his press conference was a prime example of it, where he was doing both at the same time. He was very coy and very very middle of the road about whether or not they were going to trade Bumgarner. He said, you know, he's a great pitcher and any team in the league would want a pitcher at this level. But at the same time, you know, we, we have to kind of decide what's best for the team. And, you know, we're, we, we know that, you know, all these free agents will go and see what options they have around the league. And we completely understand that. 
And right, but they're still going to the, pursue some. You know, I think Kevin Pillar, someone you you talk about bringing back, Mike Yastrzemski, someone you talk about bringing back. They both hit 42 home runs apiece. Evan Longoria hit 20 as well, but I think you know, in his age and also what we have coming up the pipeline at third base, he's kind of the odd man out of, of our three best power hitters. But yeah, I I I, I see I. I agree with everything that he said in those moments. Yes. And I just thought he did a really good job of towing the line. And I thought that he, if you're reading between the lines, right. Uh, he talked about, for instance, back to what you were saying, Kendall sick well about uh, finding a manager. He, he made it very clear that finding a manager wasn't as clear cut as simply, I'm just going to get, a guy that is a scouter, he, you know, he was like, well, they, he, he, without saying it, but, but, but kind of dancing around it, he was like, I'm really just looking for a guy that's going to share the duties with me and compliment what I think I'm good at. I'm not necessarily looking for a guy that is going to do like the three things that every GM does in the rest of baseball. He could be an analytics guy. He could be a, a player personnel guy. He, you know, he, he could be, he could be a combination of the two, but I'm just looking for a guy that balances me out and wants to carry the load. But I really got the impression that Zadie is looking for some, looking at the GM position as more of a shared position between him as president of baseball operations and the GM, which I think was a little unique and kind of, you know, reminds me a little bit of what's been going on in the NFL with, you know, Sean McVay with the Rams and, Kyle Shanahan with the 49ers where both of these both of these coaches don't have they don't have uh offensive coordinators and they're kind of doing double duties. I I feel like Zadie is not with such a great record, such a such a prominent record as a GM. He's not really ready to let go of that position yet and he's really looking for a guy that wants to share these duties but he still has his uh, fingers very dipped into that GM pie. Did you guys right. get that impression too? Well, yeah. I mean, Brian Saban, you know, was still involved in player trades and transactions uh, after he had passed the mantle on to his one of his top scouts. So I think it makes more than enough sense, you know, for that role to be somewhat shared and for him to have some input on that and to collaborate, too, because that's obviously where he's coming from. And he was he's has an extremely, you know, stellar track record and in, in, in that position. So, you know, why not? Why, why wouldn't you take, you know, his input? Yes. Well, and look at what the look at what the Warriors have built with Bob Myers. It, you know, it wasn't Bob Myers and Bob Myers alone. You know, him and Kerr worked together. They right. would get input from everyone from Jerry West to Kirk Lacob, um, and and everyone in between. And you know, I think that's what Farhan was was trying to get across too. We when the GM search is that, you know, if they bring in a GM, they're not going to have okay the GM you do this and I'll do th- and I'll do this and, and there's you know you'll be in charge of this only and I'll be like they're they're going to work on everything together and he said if they bring somebody in who's got a great scouting background then they'll probably have that GM you know focus more on scouting than they would you know someone who maybe has more of an expertise in something else but um, I think the idea is you try to bring in talent and then you let that talent help you become better. And it's no different than the guys they want to bring in on the field, um, whether it's uh, bats that can do more damage at, at AT&T or, or at Oracle Park, um, or if it's, you know, pitchers who can, um, you know, have success here and, and everywhere in between. Yes, absolutely. And one of the, one of the things that I also I also caught that I thought was very interesting is that he 
he they asked him about experience and if experience was necessary and he he said he wasn't going to completely rule it out but am i alone in thinking that the if you read between the lines he's really looking for somebody that has gm somewhere before at least you know at least at the lowest at, at the uh, the minor leagues but but preferably someone at the majors did you guys get that impression too he was like i'm not i'm not closed off to it but he kind of, I, well, I, he acknowledged that that's you know that's how the sport will always be going forward. Is that you got to give guys you know new guys without experience you got to give them shots to do that because that's that's how it works. But that he's more or less not going to be you know going that route in this direction. He's probably going to be he's going not with inclined with to track that. record. That's not his preference, right? Probably someone from a playoff team. You you'd imagine some candidates from there are going to be he's going to be looking at. But I think I think also too is. And this goes to what your point was before about how he was kind of middle middle of the road and didn't really say um, some you know definite things. Is that if you want to be able to bring someone in for an interview that you like, you aren't going to come out and say we we want to bring someone in who's from a winning culture or we want to bring someone in who's been a manager before. Like if you say things like that, then you've eliminated the option to talk to people who don't fit that category. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, part of him saying we're willing to talk to people who've never been a manager, who have been a manager, who only manage in the minors. Like if, if he's okay with all of those listings, it doesn't necessarily mean everyone that they're going to bring in is going to be without managerial experience, but I right. think they're going to want to talk to someone, people from all of those, um, right. Those categories. They don't so, want to limit their options, right? Exactly, because you don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want anyone to say uh, no before you even asked. And you know, it's the same reason that they said they they have a level of interest in bringing every one of their free agents back. They would probably say that even if that was the last thing they meant. And if right. they were like, yeah, actually, we have no interest in bringing Stephen Vote back, but we're not, but you know. Um, we're not going to say that out loud, that kind right. of thing. And, and I do think they legitimately are interested in bringing Bumgarner, Will Smith, um, Stephen Vogt, and Pablo Sandoval back. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, baseball's become about, well, we'll bring you back, but at the price range we want to bring you back at. So if you're able to get more money elsewhere, then we're probably not going to bring you back. If you're able to get similar money elsewhere, then we'll maybe talk about you know offering you a little bit more. But there's going to be price points where it's like, okay, if Bumgarner get, you know, if, if for argument's sake, they're only willing to give four years to Bumgarner and some team offers them six, they might not be willing to go to six no matter how much a year it is. And so they might say, sorry, we won't give you six. So if you want to stay with us, then we'll give you more money for four, but we're not going to go for six years. And or whatever, you know, I'm making those numbers up, but, you know, I think that's what um, will come down to is that, you know, how they value each guy. It sounds like they're going to give qualifying offers to both Bumgarner and Smith. So that actually would make it more likely that Smith would stay and less likely that Bumgarner would um, because teams are going to be willing to give up draft picks for Bumgarner, but they might not be willing to give up draft picks for Smith. Um, But, you you know, you never know. Um, And so I think with with all of the things that are going on, I think the one thing that's clear is that we have a very smart man uh, running the show. And that's really nice to know. It yes. really is. Gives it, hope to the resurgence. It does. It really does. Gentlemen, let's I want to hear final thoughts and then we gotta go. Just really quick, Raymond, what are your final thoughts 
on anything, on Boach, on the future. Final thoughts on, on the end of this season. Well, I hope uh, guys like Brandon Belt, Brandon Crawford, you know, um, gosh, who else? Uh, Joe Panic's already gone, but I hope guys like that are given legitimate consideration to just not be part of the team anymore um, because uh, these guys just don't produce like they once did. Buster Posey, I understand, is coming off of the hip thing, and that's huge, and he might have some juice to produce next year, but it's hard to tell. And, and I think Stephen Boat clearly had a better year, even though he played less than him. I, I just, like Stephen Boat's energy. He's, he's, a, he's got a, he's, he's a little bit younger. And well, actually, no, I think, they're, I think their ages are, I don't know, I can't remember. But, you know, <laughs> but right. Yastrzemski, Pilar, Longoria, I think need to be given consideration to come back because of the long ball. Although, uh, although with Longoria, I said, I think with some of the guys that we have coming up, you know, that might, they might be looking elsewhere in that position. You know, uh, Solano was excellent. He was the only guy we had on the team that batted over 300. And I thought he had a great, he was extremely consistent, uh, even despite getting traded. So I think that's, that bodes well for him. You know, I think the young guys, Jalen Davis came up and really didn't do much. He struggled and was kind of forcing it when he came up. So that was, I was kind of bummed out to see that because I had high hopes for him. Uh, Dubon, I think is someone else to, to, you know, keep an eye on, but, but, you know, you never know with these guys. I just think that for me going forward, last words, I I just think like some of the old guys need to go, you know, at least half need to be considered uh, the boot. And it's easier for me to see that with someone like Zaidi at the head, unless it was someone that I didn't know and didn't have a whole lot of confidence in. Then then I'd feel a little bit different about it. But even then I'd say Brandon Belt on the top of my list of people that need to go. So I'm looking forward to a fresh new young lineup that can produce runs, especially at home. Yes. All right, Candlestick Will, your final thoughts. Uh, I just had a, a, a quick question for you guys because I was thinking about this when we were talking Bochi. So Bochi has three World Series. Bill Walsh has three Super Bowls. Steve Kerr has three uh, Larry O'Brien trophies. Oh, shit. So, <laughs> so I, I'm, not sure what, I don't, I'm not sure if it's just there's something about the number three with the Bay Area. I don't know. You know, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, three cities. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if there's some kind of thing going on there. But I would think that Bill Walsh is still number one in the Bay Area um, for what he was able to do in San Francisco. Um, Bochi, you know, maybe sur- surplants or, you know, supplants him because he's also got three but did it longer. Um, I don't know. I think Walsh is probably still one and then Bochy two. Kerr would be three, I think, even though what he did and the percentage of wins he had is actually greater than both. Um, but if Steve Kerr wins a, another championship, does that make him the greatest coach in Bay Area history? Oh, my God. Candlestick with the fucking mic drop at the at the end with the greatest, greatest Bay Area sports question of the decade. We could we could oh. do a whole another episode. You know what? I, I, maybe 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 just like I'm gonna leave that for a future you know podcast. But you know what? I was I, it just it, it, hit, it hit me when I, when we were talking about his three championships and I was like, wait, Walsh only won three and Kerr's won three. That's kind of weird. Okay, so as I was like, there's nobody else that's won that many. You know, Seifert with, with two, Seifert with two. Um, but you know, but uh, that's it. Know, John John Madden only had the one, and the you know Raiders had different coaches and. 
Um, they weren't even in Oakland for all of them. And uh, the A's didn't have the same manager for all three when they won three in a row. Um, LaRusso only won the one, even though he went to three straight. So it was like there, nobody's won th- more than three. So, you know, I, if Kerr, you know, just curse or plant. Um, is that it's not even the word, but it just Kerr jump Bochi and Walsh if he wins another one. Cause I, I would think now that Durant's gone and, um, Iguodala has gone and this t- team is like a whole kind of new version of this team that that actually would be the case. Cause I don't think anyone's expecting them to win again. Okay. So if, if Curry wins another one with, with Kerr, does that, does that make it him better than Walsh and Bochi? That seems a little sacrilegious to say out loud. I don't know. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. That is the great. We are doing a whole gold cast of that. We don't have time tonight. That, that's another two hours for all of us. Cliffhanger. Uh, this episode. Will yeah, end on this a is ending on a on one hundred percent. Let's pick this up next Thursday. I want that to be our second episode because that is insane. We'll be back on Sunday. I want to give my final thoughts. Uh, first of all, amazing gold cast, guys. This I think we sent off the Giants, the, the the Giants, the Giants dynasty of this decade off to pasture in the right way and then get us get everyone hype for the next generation of Giants players and Giants World Series. Because I have no doubt with Sadie that we will not we will win again. I believe 100 percent we will win again. Um, that's my final thoughts. We are going to come back to that question because that is a beast of a question. You are right. Walsh, Boach, and Kerr, the all three of the major sports, all three rings, uh, Walsh over the longest period of time, but still three is only three. And then Boach, Boach and Kerr, Kerr in the shortest amount of time and Boach in the second shortest, I think. Bochi was manager for 13 years. Uh, Walsh wasn't a man, wasn't a coach for 13 years. So as far as length of time, because Walsh retired like so abruptly, um, you know, he actually had less time than Bochi. And there's so much to consider now, man. You're just throwing Walsh obviously won so much more percentage wise than, than Bochi did, but it's also a lot harder to win in baseball. Yeah, Oof, man. Well, okay. We, we, we're, we're coming back. To we'll, this. We'll, we'll, un- we'll unpack that another day. We are. We are. We're, we're, I want to unpack, unpack that next week. That is a monster. Well done, Candlestick. Well, well done. Welcome back. <laughs> um, all right, guys. That Excellent Gold Cast. Uh, so concludes another edition of the Gold Cast. We are the Voice of the Bay. We'll be back on Sunday to preview the San Francisco 49ers, the 3-0 San Francisco 49ers, going against the Cleveland Browns for NFC West Supremacy. I'm your host, Rudy Salisa Third, and with me is my brother, my co-host, Raymond Salisa First, baby, and our esteemed co-host, Candle Stick Will. Boom! So concludes another edition of the Gold Cast. We'll see you next time. Same Gold Cast time, same Gold Cast channel. Thank you, Boach. This is, this is the Gold Cast.